Thank you for coming together on this new Sunday morning. This weekend we had a wonderful workshop on color calligraphy with our guest teacher, Kaz Tanahashi. Thank you so much, Kaz, for coming to the monastery once again and teaching us. And many people who've been to Kaz's calligraphy workshop before said each year they learn something new. It isn't uh, something you come to and say, okay, now I'm, now I'm done. Each, each workshop is a new beginning, a dropping, a dropping to another level of working with this beautiful practice of body, mind, and breath, unified. <clears throat> so I encourage you to come back again, and I really encourage those who haven't experienced the workshop to talk to those who did come to it and think about saving some time next year and some money, some cash, and coming to, the, coming to this uh, wonderful workshop. So much we learned, huh? not just how to put some color on the brush and put it on the paper, but so many layers underneath that. Maybe we can convince Kaz to come back twice a year. <coughs> and many people came who are artists, uh, some people came who don't, have never done art before, never picked up a brush before and done any painting. So it's wonderful to have that, that diversity of people coming to the workshop. Artists who have to put aside what they know about art and begin fresh. And people who are beginning fresh with all their fears about even picking up the brush and looking at this, looking with fear and trembling at this piece of white paper in front of them. And everybody created something very, very beautiful because it comes out of us. Hmm? not something that we put on the paper, but something that emerges, especially when we do meditation in the morning and then come and sit uh, quietly. That's one of the beautiful things about this workshop. It's a meditative workshop because we're not all talking all the time. We're really quiet and focused as we're doing the calligraphy, the brush strokes. I began the workshop... uh, with a quote from Dogen Zinji, one of my favorite quotes, on various people's faces hang old Gautama's eyes. Gautama is the Buddha's name. So on all of your faces, on all of our faces, hang the Buddha's eyes. And our practice is to become able to see through those eyes clearly. There are eyes already. The enlightened eyes are our eyes. But how to see through them clearly. How to see with our ears and with our skin and with our nose. The quote goes on. On various people's faces hang Gautama's eyes. But still they beat their breasts with fists in empty grieving. So, so much of our life is spent in grieving. And the Buddha said that this is something that we have to set aside to do our practice. Set aside grief and clinging to the world. So all the things that we wish weren't happening, we have to acknowledge they're happening. That's the truth. That's the first noble truth, the truth of suffering. It's a fact. We can feel about it many ways, but it doesn't matter. It's a fact. So the Buddha said, we have to accept it as a fact. And then how do we live? If we're not always living in opposition, 
trying to make things happen a certain way, to avoid certain things. Many people live their lives always trying to avoid things that are difficult for them. But the Buddha said all of that has to be put aside. If we want to see through Gotama's eyes, we have to put aside clinging and grief for the world, that push and pull of, I want it this way, I don't want it that way. We have to accept, in this moment it is how it is. It doesn't mean that we don't work for peace, as cause does, cause is a person who works very actively for peace. In many, in, on many fronts at, at one time, not only within himself, which is where it begins, but also in the outer world. He just came back from Nanjing, where a terrible massacre occurred during World War II. And only now, after hmm, almost two generations have passed, is there the ability to bring the Japanese and the Chinese people together to begin to discuss this. So this, this work of reconciliation has to go on over generations. We have to pass it on to other generations to do. When the acute enmity and bitterness dies down, as when we went to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, then we can begin to talk and to share our mutual sadness that this is the way the world is. Acknowledgement, this is the way the world is. And what are we going to do? But first we have to acknowledge this is what happened. This is how it happens in the human world. But not to add anything extra to that. This is how it happens. We embrace it fully and then we move forward. In Zen practice we often talk about the tension of opposites. And many people experience that this weekend. This tension of opposites where you really, really want the character to come out the correct way. You keep trying and trying and trying, but then there's a releasing that happens when it begins to just flow f- through you, especially at the end of the workshop. We use this giant, uncontrollable brush. <laughs> and somehow it just flows. And then these amazing, amazing things happen. So this tension of opposites that cause taught us of practicing over and over and over again the ancient characters. Over and over and over again. I, You know, cause said the He's had a whole lifetime of practicing these characters and the gap between him and the ancient masters keeps getting wider. (laughs) So we accept that, that we practice over and over and over again learning from the ancient masters. And we bring to it a new creativity and spontaneity like this, like the color and the huge brush. But we started, as you know, in this workshop, practicing the classic characters the classic way. So it's like every virtuoso pianist practices the scales. We always go back to the essentials. So in our practice, we always go back to breath. We always go back to that single stroke of the out-breath that strokes our life, brings our life into its full color and form. And then we lift up, just like we lift up the brush, we lift up into emptiness and we're poised there for an instant anything is possible and then on the outbreath our life comes into full bloom this moment of life and then we pick it up let it go empty it out and then another stroke another breath so 
So this tension of opposites, the ancient and the new, the studied and the spontaneous. So in Zen, we don't reject one for the other. We include them all. And Kaz himself, I get the, <clears throat> I get the uh, advantage over Kaz now because he has to sit over there quiet and I get to talk about him. <laughs> but Kaz, as you've caught a glimpse of this weekend, embodies this tension of opposites. Hmm? Kaz always says that his way is to be lazy and to be stupid and to be crazy. So he said that once his, his teenage son said, Dad, you are so stupid. And now most parents would object to that, right? But Kaz said, didn't you know that? <laughs> and then his son couldn't say anything. <laughs> so we spend so much energy, if you think about it, resisting being lazy, being stupid, and being crazy. Right? How much energy in our life, in your life, do you resist being lazy, being stupid, and being crazy? We don't want to be perceived that way. So if we yield to that, if we accept, yes, I am innately lazy, and I am <coughs> stupid, and the gap keeps getting wider <laughs> year after year, and I am totally crazy, one psychiatrist who did his first seven-day meditation retreat at the end said, you know, if I let anybody know what was going on in my mind, I'd be institutionalized. <laughs> so we're crazy. Our mind is completely crazy. So if we just yield to that and say, yes, that's the way it is, and that's okay, just like we say, the world is, is suffering, the human world is suffering, that's the way it is, that's a fact then all of that energy that we use to try to resist those facts is freed up for something else. It's freed up for being productive. It's freed up for being creative. It's freed up so that wisdom can flow flow through us. Hmm? That prajnaparamita. Last night caused it three characters, kaijo-e. Very beautiful characters. So Kai is this square or rectangle, the precepts. So we have to begin our life with the foundation of the precepts, keeping the precepts, the guidelines, the driver's manual, as Ajahn Amaro says. It's a driver's manual for, living, for driving this human vehicle. We weren't given one when we were born. we cobbled together a driver's manual out of bits and pieces that we gathered from the world, from our parents who may not have been able to drive very well either. Uh, So we just try to pick up bits and pieces and put them together to make a driver's manual, but it's quite defective. So the precepts give us a solid foundation for how do we live a human life? How do we go forward? How do we drive along this path of our life journey? So, Kai the precepts, and Joe, Samadhi, sitting in stillness and the energy that begins to flow through us when we're not putting out. And then A, the circle. So Samadhi is a triangle, 
the triangle of our body when we're sitting, empty in the middle, and then A, the circle, which represents Prajnaparamita, this wisdom that can flow through us when we're really out of the way, when we step out of the way. Wisdom beyond wisdom, this very deep river of wisdom that's always flowing, always has, no beginning, no end, and we can tap into it even a little bit when we sit. When we move out of the way, all of this grieving and clinging for the world, all of these notions about, I should be this way, I shouldn't be this way, I shouldn't be lazy, I shouldn't be crazy, I shouldn't be stupid. When we move all of those notions out of the way, then, the, then we're back to this emptiness, this white sheet of paper, another stroke, another breath. We were asking Kaz, or I prompted Kaz to tell us a little bit about his day. Because Kaz is in his 70s and one of the most protective people that I know. Most people in the workshop don't even know this, but Kaz is usually working on several books at once, maybe several dozen books at once. And he's written many, many, many books. So, And then he has all these peace projects going on around the world, and then his, also his artwork. And then he translates Dogen Zenji. So even though he says he's very lazy and that's he practices the way of laziness and stupidity, there's a lot flowing out of that laziness and stupidity. So in asking him about his day, I, I prompted him to <laughs> say what I know, is what, that he gets up early in the morning And the first thing he does is the most difficult thing to do. Now, most of us would keep putting that off, right? Procrastination becomes a habit. And so all day long we're worrying about it because it's in the back of our mind. Oh, there's this thing I should do but I really don't want to do. And, you know, when can I do it? And uh, uh, we get all tied up about this thing that's so difficult to do that we don't want to do. So if we take that and put it in front of us first thing in the morning, then just do it. Then, as he said, the rest of the day then is free. It's kind of given to us free. The rest of the day he can be relaxed. So then if you know, the schedule changes or people call up unexpectedly or arrive unexpectedly, it's not a problem. Because that thing which was binding up our energy is taken care of. So this is an amazing way to be lazy. (laughs) This tension of opposites, do the most difficult thing first. And then the day flows from there. From that release of tension, of energy, of anxiety, fear, worry, distress, suffering. So Dogen Zenji says, time after time, scoop up the toads and jellyfish in your net and have them put their minds to jumping free of the net. So the toads and the jellyfish, all those things that are stirring in our mind time after time, scoop up the toads and jellyfish in your net and have them put their minds to jumping free of the net. So you scoop up the most difficult things and have that energy become free and available to you. 
to jumping clear, jumping clear of the net to reach the shore, to reach that other shore, the shore of freedom, the shore of spontaneous creative activity. But this takes this time after time, this time after time, practicing the same characters, time after time. And then comes the freedom, the jumping free. So time after time, we return to the breath. Time after time. You know, there's an illusion, I think, when you begin meditation practice and practice that, oh, well, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll learn how to do breath practice and then I'll graduate to something else. I'll graduate to koans or oh, tantric practice. That's what I want to do. One of, our, one of our friends who's from overseas says, Americans are very difficult to teach because they always want to jump to the most difficult practice first. They want to skip the preliminaries. But the preliminary is the foundation for our practice. It's the wide foundation for our practice. So we can't build on practice unless we keep returning to the foundations over and over and over again. Like Kaz looking, as as you notice, when Kaz puts a, a template in front of him of the old Chinese masters of calligraphy, he doesn't just glance at it and then do calligraphy. He looks at it, starts his stroke, looks at it again, starts his stroke, continues his stroke, looks at it again, continues his stroke. So always referring back, time after time, back to the masters. So how many thousands of times do you think he's put a template, that template in front of him of some basic character and practiced it, either alone or, or with us, watching thousands, tens of thousands of times probably. And yet always referring back to the masters, so always returning to the foundation So in our practice, the foundation is our breath. So simple. But each stroke is different. Like each stroke of the brush is different. So can we really be awake and alive for each breath is different, each stroke of our life? Each gesture, each movement is different. That's that miracle of mindfulness that Kaz titles a lot of his and so is the miracle of mindfulness. Miracle of mindfulness is each moment is fresh. So we never get bored. Boredom, which is the sickness of our society, especially young people, have to have something really noisy and fast-paced and bright and so they don't feel bored. You worked very, very hard to avoid boredom. You end up in places like prison, where you're faced to, you have to come face to face with boredom. The very thing we run away from is the thing that we will have to come face to face with. So this tension of opposites takes some amusing turns. This tension of opposites in that we embrace in Zen practice takes some amusing turns. For example. Kaz has a very beautiful and very talented daughter who's now working in the movie industry. Mm-hmm. But Kaz is telling me that she's working in a, in a she has a major role in a, in a film now. And I said, well, what's the film about? And he said, it's a violent film. Right? Kaz, yeah. So isn't that interesting? 
Here's her father, who's a peacemaker, peace activist, and then she's exploring this edge. Hmm? So this tension of opposites also happens in a family. So you may have a family in which the parents are very concerned with material uh, security, maybe because they grew up during the Depression. And then their children get to explore giving up, renunciation, right? And then if they have children, they'll be stockbrokers, you know? So it's like... (laughs) Or CPAs. (laughs) So this tension of opposites is not just within us, but it happens also within a family or generation after generation. We get to pass the ball back and forth, this ball of how we play life. It's very mathematical. There's another Zen teacher, very dedicated Zen teacher, who lives a very simple life very stripped down, and one of her daughters is a porn star and really believes that this that, that sexual pleasure is the way to happiness in life. So there's two wonderful contrasts, and, and they love each other and they really embrace each other's way of being in the world, way of, of leading people to happiness in the world. Interesting, huh? Somebody's, uh, last night I got the mail, picked up the mail at the post office, and in our usual mail for the monastery, there were two Cosmo magazines, <laughs> which are like six wild and sexy sex tricks to keep him happy. No. <laughs> <laughs> Where did this come from? <laughs> so we don't know if somebody's, it has Hogan's name on it, I don't know, we don't know if somebody... <laughs> subscribe to it uh, as a joke. (laughs) Very bizarre, very bizarre thing arriving on our doorstep. But you have to laugh at it, right? Because it's this sort of tension of opposites. Right there, right in our face. But also when when you read it, because I was staying at a a member's house once about a half a year ago, I was staying at a member's house and he has three beautiful teenage daughters. But these were the magazines that the girls had. So in reading through, I realized, whoa, what a world. What a world they're immersed in. Here they're 16 years old and they're reading six sexy tricks to keep him happy and they don't even have boyfriends yet. So what, you know, what, are, what are we feeding in? We have to really be aware of this. And how, do, how is it received? How do you take that information when you're 14 or 16 and then stash it away for when you need it? I don't know. You know I didn't have to face that when I was growing up, but... Now young people have to face all of that huge flood of astounding information and noisiness and music just plugged right into their ears. Uh, really amazing challenges. Hmm? And we, we right now we have this, uh, I think, kind of amusing tension of opposites at the monastery. We have younger men and older women. So we have men in their 20s and 30s, and then we have women in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. Now, that's, it actually helps avoid a lot of problems. <laughs> so we had a lot of young women in their 20s and 30s. We'd have a lot of tension of opposites here. <laughs> so it's a kind of safe, safe thing that's happening here. Huh? The young men and the older women. I don't, it'll, it'll change, of course. But right now it's kind of amusing. Uh, and it fits with, I was at a seminar for physicians in October, 
out in the Columbia Gorge, and I went to one of the, I was giving some presentations, but I went to a presentation by a psychiatrist and his wife who, psychologist and his wife, who've done a lot of work with the medical family. There are particular problems in every profession, like lawyers' families have particular problems, medical families have particular problems. I'm sure artists' families have particular problems, too. Uh, so the, he, he's, he was asked to help out with medical students years ago, and so that's become his specialty. And he was talking about that, but he was also observing changes over, over generations. And he said that in this generation, the young men seem to be disappearing because the women now are being empowered to take on careers. So the women are rising up to become CEOs and physicians and lawyers. There are more women now in medical school than men. And in my day, there were only a few women out of the whole class. So this is a big change. So women are being empowered to come into, the, into their own, into their own uh, world of, of success, of potential, well, in many realms, even you know, becoming sea women, sea men, sea women, um, working in occupations, or, you know, working as electric electrical linemen or phone, telephone linemen and so on. Construction work. A lot of areas that were unavailable before. So they, as this is happening, they're, they're noticing a disappearance of, of men. Very interesting. Where are they going? You know, they're not up there in the fore as much. So where are they going? Don't know. So maybe this is somehow related to the young men here and the older women here. I don't know. So this tension of opposites, we see it in so many aspects of life, and to not be afraid of it or worried by it, but to investigate it. Be curious about it. Keep entering it with beginner's mind. Dogen Zenji said, everybody has their own radiant light. Now I ask you, where do you all come from? The radiant, the radiant light allows the radiant light to respond. Everyone has their own radiant light. And that was so evident in this workshop this weekend. Because each person's calligraphy revealed their inner light. In Dharma school, we just had Dharma school for the kids here, and we sing, we sing this song, which most of the kids know, This Little Light of Mine. I'm going to let it shine. And then the next verse is, my brothers and my sisters, I'm going to help them shine. So we talk with the kids about, well, what is your light? Now, an adult might have trouble answering that question, but the kids don't. So I say, what is, what is your light? What is your, your special light? And one of the little girls said, oh, I dance ballet. And then she was describing her tutus, you know, and her leotards. And, and, I do it, and I perform for my brothers and my sisters and my dad. So she knew right away that was her light. And then her little sister, who's only six, I said, well, what is your light? And she looked at me real shy. She said, I run. Isn't that great? A little six-year-old. Now, in my generation, you wouldn't get a girl who would have said that was her light. That would be very rare. Well, it's only boys who ran track. Girls didn't run track in my, when I was in high school. So that's a whole change of how our light can be expressed. So she said, I run, and she just got her first skateboard. She's so excited. Six years old girl, that's fantastic. Each one has their own radiant light, and that's what you could see in these calligraphies as as the days of the workshop passed. Each person's light began to emerge in their calligraphy.
so beautiful. Each one has their own radiant light. Now I ask you, where do you all come from? So that's the spiritual question underneath everything. Where do we all come from? And where do we return to? So this tension of opposites of this life and then the emptiness that we come from and that we return to. That's a tension that scares us a lot. Hmm? To return to emptiness. What will happen? What will happen when we return? Again, children can inform us having so recently come from that emptiness. So there's a little boy who is a friend of someone in our sangha who died and then was resuscitated. And I talked to him recently and I'm hoping to film him uh, about his experience. And he said he felt no pain. And uh, I, I asked him, did you know, many people are afraid to die. Well, what, what do you think about that? And he said, oh, they shouldn't be afraid. It's the most natural thing. It's pretty amazing, huh? We could all feel that way. So this tension of opposites, you think, oh, a young person would be really afraid to die. But here's a young person who has died and come back and is not afraid at all. I wanted to show you my... Each, at the end of our workshop, each of us got to show our what we had done, our calligraphies. And I showed the, the two of mine that I like the best, and I'm gonna, I want to show them to everybody. So one of the characters we did early on was fire. Originally, these, as Kaz explained during the workshop, these were pictographs. So this was a picture of fire, flames leaping. Then it became simplified so that it could be, first it had to be carved in stone or wood, and then eventually brushed in a brush stroke. So this is the current character for fire. Now, you, can, you could understand this if you're Vietnamese, Korean, Chinese, or Japanese. So, for example, in Nanjing, when the Chinese people and the Japanese people were meeting, they could write to each other and understand each other, even though they couldn't speak each other's languages. So underneath, there's something common, and this represents this. Underneath, there's some common language beyond language, which has to do with those brushstrokes of life. So this is fire, like leaping fire. And then this one is um, water. So in our, in our Zen tradition, we have four elements that make up who we are. The four elements of earth and water and fire and air or wind. So these elements join to form this fragile body here. And what holds it together for a while For a while it's held together, and then when cause and effect changes, then they dissolve again. They go back to their original form, earth and water and fire and air. So this is water, like a wave splashing. 
And this is also the form of the Zen Enso. Many people ask, what does it mean? Well, you can't exactly explain what it means. It means, it, you can say it means many things, and it would mean many different things to you in your life. But to me, these two belong together. So we have this circle of our life and our practice. Our practice keeps going back around to things again and again. Dogen Zenji said our practice is like a spiral, and actually when you, when you paint these, they become like a spiral. They twist on themselves. So there's something we're working on in our life. Maybe there's one essential lesson that we have for each lifetime and we work on it for a while and then we release it we let it go we let it integrate into our lives whatever insight we've had or movement we've made we let it integrate into our life in what appears to be a resting period and then whoop there it is again the same issue ah gosh I thought I'd solve that one it's like when you're doing brush strokes you know and you first it's really hard and then it becomes easy and then you go back and it's hard again. You're making all these mistakes. So Kaz would always say, you're getting worse. <laughs> so that's what practice sometimes looks like. I'm moving backwards. I'm getting worse. But it's just you're coming around to the same fundamental thing again. Okay, now I need to work at it at another level. So that's this circle, which is actually a spiral. And this, the color, when we do it with color, you can see that spiraling aspect, the folding in on itself again and again. We fold back in and we look inside. What is it that's there that needs to be worked on? So this also represents our essential emptiness. So in the in the center, when we really go deep, is emptiness around which are formed earth, water, fire, and air. So there's this flowing water, this flowing life around this essential emptiness. But this this is where prajnaparamita is where we can touch it by going through our form, through our mind, out the other side, through our fears, through our grief. We have to go into it and then out the other side. And then out of this emptiness, this emptiness is empty, but it's not empty because this is like a cornucopia. Everything flows out of this. That's why it has a little gap here. So everything can flow out. All things return to the one. What does the one return to? Returns to all things. So again and again, that has to be our practice. To sit down, to return to emptiness. To stand up and return to form and activity. To sit down, return to emptiness. Potential energy. This emptiness is not a black void. It has an aspect of black void. Emptiness has many, many aspects. It has an, a, an aspect of black void, but it also has an aspect of potential energy, unbelievable potential energy, unbelievable source of potential energy. So when we return to it and we touch it, then out we come, out our whole life flows again. So it's just like lifting up the brush, returning to emptiness beginning a stroke, returning to all things. So Dogen Zenji says, I love this quote, life has no place once it comes. And then I added a couple words here. Dogen Zenji said, it is like putting on pants. So I added, it is like the invisible man putting on pants. (laughs) 
Life has no place once it comes. It is like the invisible man putting on pants. So when we assemble these four elements, it's emptiness putting on pants. (laughs) It's emptiness putting on color and form and movement. Again and again and again. So these two I like to put together. This is our practice. So at the heart it's empty, but it's also fire. It's this fire of determination to really go deeper and deeper and deeper, endlessly. To return to the emptiness, and then back into the form. And then this, our our determination to never stop can always go deeper. Our potential for clarity of mind and openness of heart I think must be infinite. So always we keep going. Keep discovering. Keep enjoying. So I hope you all enjoyed this weekend. Discovered something this weekend. can take it home and share it and let it manifest in this life. Though the whole, this whole last quote from Dogen Zenji, life has no place once it comes. It is like the invisible man putting on pants. However, our face is solemn. Therefore it is said the 10,000 things return to the one. Death has no place to go. It is like taking off one's pants. However, our traces are dropped away. Again and again, we drop away the traces. Thank you.